to another podcast of the snap no tap show sorry that we missed you last week i was recovering i'm still in the recovery of my surgery but uh tony Cicchini here with the one and only joe cardinal who can never have surgery because i found out um my surgeon said straight out there would be no that would be against the hippocratic oath to cut into perfection and and mar him in any way, shape, or form, he's just Joe. You're immortal. You're you're a living, breathing God. Really, is what you are. Thank you, Tony. Uh, I agree. Of course, well said. Uh, you know, you always speak the truth, and I think that's why people tune in um, and to get the truth from you, straight from the horse's mouth, as it was speak. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, let's do our plugs first. Then we have a guest today as well, and we'll, we'll get talking to him soon. Aaron Riker's joining us. I'm, I'm very happy to have him join. Um, welcome, Aaron. But before we do, let's talk about uh, business. So uh, this Saturday, the 26th, we have a workshop. So even though Coach is recovering, he's going to show no, up. It's the, it's the 25th. Is it the 25th? Whatever. It's this Saturday. Um, and it'll be at 1.30 at Bender Martial Arts and Fitness. Um, so we'll be there uh, enjoying that. If you can't make it, uh, there's other ways to support your coach and learn things. We've got digital downloads. You can download those from Tony's website, of course. And, you know, looking forward to the summer. If you've got time, sign up. You can come, you know, right now, obviously, coach can't do much in-person training um, besides the workshops. But he will be looking to book up his schedule this summer. So if you're thinking about setting aside time, that's always helpful. And of course, we've got the monthly membership for those who, you know, can't afford the downloads or, you know, you just listen to the podcast and you want to show your support for that. Uh, check out our memberships. The links will be below in all the YouTube videos. Uh, you can sign up for the $5 a month, kind of a thank you level, or there's a $10 a month where you get uh, video content that we film a lot of times at these workshops, things that you will not see in other videos. So uh, if you've bought the digital downloads or, you know, had seen the BJJ Fanatics videos, this is stuff in addition to that. You, you can't get elsewhere. So just for the simple cost of $10 a month, um, you can get access to that. I think that's all the business we have. So, um, yeah, I think it's time to introduce our guest, Aaron Riker. Uh, Aaron is a friend of mine. I've met him at Bender's Martial Arts. And hey, he's a friend of mine, too. <laughs> Do you really have any close friends, Tony? I mean, no. Yeah, see. <laughs> really, I'm just using both of you guys to get on a podcast. Sorry to let you know like this. All right. You're not the first, but we're used to it. I mean, this will give you exposure to at least 10 or 11 other people out there. So enjoy the fame while you have it. Um, yeah, I met Aaron. Uh, he's, you know, much like myself, a novice, beginner training there. Um, but what I really admire about him and his training ethic, um, he's one of the guys who, you know, 
I've seen him do three classes in a row. So, you know, four and a half hours of training. He'll start with Muay Thai, he'll do jujitsu, and then he'll train judo after that, you know. And, um, uh, you know, I've seen him. Yeah, obviously, he, he comes to the catch wrestling things and anything, he's open to anything. I've actually seen him training at the sword school. So all these different venues, he, he's just like a, a sponge trying to learn all these different styles while he's here in the Chicagoland area. Uh, it's, it's really impressive, his work ethic. And I think in some ways, I mean, I kind of generalize, but he gives me faith in the future that young people are willing to train hard and learn. Uh, you know, a lot of times on social media, you'll hear people ragging on uh, Gen Z or millennial saying they don't really have the, the toughness or the work ethic. Uh, but uh, Aaron is is the, the counter argument to that. I've actually seen him come into the gym, uh, you know, with his leg brace on when he couldn't train uh, just to sit and watch and learn. Uh, we were doing a, a wrestling lesson with uh Blaine one time and he was working us pretty hard and Aaron with his leg brace feeling guilty that he wasn't in I saw him starting to do push-ups on the side just to get a workout in he just couldn't uh sit still so uh, I really admire that and excited to hear his life story but he's also got other interesting things we like to have we're not just martial arts focused here on the podcast uh we've had musicians people who are experts in other fields of endeavor like outdoor survival and um he's got a lot of other interesting things he brings to the table that i think the listeners will enjoy hearing about so uh aaron welcome um glad to have you on the podcast thank you joe that was a really sweet introduction yeah, and you just pay me that money later, like we yeah, talked yeah. About. yeah I'll, that, I'll bounce you a check. <laughs> uh, but no, yeah, I'm very honest of my impressions of you, and it's it's great to have you on. Just to, that's one of the great things of you know, part of being in the training community is just run across people of all kinds of you know ages and demographics, and you and you have things in common to share with, and you meet great people. So, uh, and we want to like you know. Uh, and the way you're really cool with coach and helping us film some things, you jumped right in. So um happy to have you. So let's start. I mean, uh, where'd you grow up? Yeah. So uh, I grew up in a town called Carmel, Indiana. It's a little bit north of the Indianapolis in the middle of the state. Um, you know, it's a pretty quiet town. My childhood wasn't super interesting. Um, I got started in... Uh, martial arts towards the end of my kind of high school career um, there was a a gym that opened up near me that um it said it said boxing on it and I thought well you know boxing's fun maybe I'll learn that and I go there and it, it I didn't know any better but that turned out to just be kind of an exercise place like fitness boxing um but in the back one of the uh one of the guys I knew from school went to a uh there was a little martial arts school that met in the back of the place and one of the guys in there i knew from school and so i you know i asked him to box one time just you know and having only ever hit the bag he just beat the hell out of me um i had only ever hit a bag before so uh and i just i absolutely loved it and you know that was kind of what i really wanted to learn so that kind of got my martial arts journey started um, now, before that, like growing up in school, were, did you do other sports? No, I was like the most unathletic kid um, up until high school, really. I never I never did much in the way of sports. Um, I started dancing in high school. Uh, we so my friends and I, we like to go out swing dancing. Um, and the things we were interested in were lots of lifts and flips and stuff. So there was a little bit of athleticism gained there. But aside from that, like 
dancing and martial arts were the first active things I ever really did. Now, was the swing dancing, was that strictly like a social thing or were you part of theater in school? No, that was a, yeah, that was a social thing. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to go to a really big um, public high school. And so they would, you know, the kids could start up kind of whatever they wanted to for the most part. So this was all like led and fueled by the students. Um, now, it's my understanding that in small towns, rural small towns, dancing is illegal. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, luckily, um, Kevin Spacey had kind of paved the way for us a little bit here. So there was minimal uh, resistance. But I was worried about that. Ever since I saw that, I was concerned about, you know, the, our our brothers out in the rural areas. That's good to hear that. You've got, there's been progress made. Yeah, uh, luckily, luckily, our uh, the foot was already loose, you could say. Yeah. Um, so, like, did, was it like a, a class in school? Because obviously swing dancing is not what you'd say what the kids are doing these days. Um, like, was there a formal class somewhere or how did you guys get into that? No, it was a, it was an after school thing. Um, and I it's funny how I got into it. Um, I was ambushed after school. My buddy um, jumps out and he picks me up and carries me into this room full of kids, um, you know, kids my age. Uh, and sets me down and says, hey, you're going to you're going to do this with me here. Um, and, you know, I wasn't about to run away. So I stayed for the first um, like club meeting and fell in love with it. And I think it's a hidden secret. They need to tell more young men that dancing is a great way to meet girls. Honestly, like if you're I wish I had like thought about that younger. You know, I'm a little bit late for me to learn that lesson. But um <laughs> Definitely. I think that's, a, you know, as far as a social thing and meeting people and having fun and actually getting in shape, it, it's a great thing. So um, that's where you, st so you started in dancing. And then uh, you said you were already out of high school when you started to uh, train martial arts a little bit, or were you towards the end of your high school career? Towards the end. Yeah. Like my junior, senior year, I started going to this boxing place. And that was when I first kind of started working out. Just, you know, they just would have us hit the bag and do various calisthenics and things. Um, and one of the guys, one of my friends from the swing dancing club went to the martial arts school there. And I just bumped into him one time and he said, hey, if you want to come try a class with us in the back, you're welcome to. That's how they get you, man. The first one's always free, right? That's right. <laughs> he created an addict right there. <laughs> so um, what style was that? What, what, like, yeah, what did they do? So, see, I'm trying to remember. Um, Michael, who is my teacher, when I inevitably probably butcher this, uh, I apologize, but he, they did a, a few different things. He kind of started off as a JKD concepts teacher. So that's uh, Jeet Kune Do concepts, which is just kind of the idea of um, study everything, take what's useful and throw out what's not. Um, so, you know, he'd, he'd studied lots of things over the years and put together what he liked. Um, but he had kind of divorced himself from the JKD community because of a lot of political bullshit from what he told me. Um, but so his focus was self-defense. So I went to kind of a self-defense class where he talked about mixing, you know, strikes and takedowns and working on the ground a little bit, um, talking about where some of the dirty stuff goes, like striking eyes and things like that. Like, you know, it's not enough to just be like, ah, oh, yes, I'll poke you in the eye. You actually need to have like, a good jab to make that happen things like that um, 
So how was the transition from pretty much just a dance background, which I guess there's, I wouldn't say there's contact, you know, I mean, there's obviously it's physical, very aerobic and agile and things like that into kind of like, I assuming at least at some of the time it was full contact or is that right? Yeah. And I was definitely one of those people in the beginning who uh, I was in high school. So I liked, I found out that I liked to fight. So I fought with them a lot. So, you know, I got, I got the shit kicked out of me all the time. Um, <laughs> Wait till you get married. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta trick someone into doing that to me first, though. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's interesting how the the dancing, especially like partner dancing, um, mixed in with that. Like some ways, it was really helpful. Like with grappling, you know, I kind of had a bit of a head start in feeling what the other person was doing and moving around there. Um, it continues to be a hindrance to my striking because my legs are always too straight and I'm a little bit too stiff just from doing some of the ballroom stuff that I branched into. So um, how long were you training at that gym? Uh, I still go back there um, when I'm back uh, in, back in my hometown, visiting family and stuff. I'm still very close with all those folks, but that's been maybe six, seven years. Six, seven years on and off still doing that. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And so um out of high school, did you, uh, then what were your like college plans? Did you have any, did you, what was, what yeah. happened? So I knew very quickly I would never survive in a, like a college college. Um, I was always a terrible student. And so, um, you know, I, I got into trade school for violin making. Um, ah. I, yeah. I, um, I loved music. I still do, but I also, you know, I'm not much of a player. And back then I didn't really have the discipline to practice. So I never got very good. Um, but I, um, I grew up watching my dad make furniture and stuff in his garage. And we had some shop classes in high school that I took and I really enjoyed that. So this let me kind of put the two together. I, I mean, you're still studying that? Yeah, I'll be, hopefully I'll be graduating soon. Yeah, yeah, in June, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you weren't a musician? I, I sort of was. I was, I, was a, um, I was a pretty poor musician. I played in like the school orchestras and stuff, the low ones. Oh, I'm a, in a punk band, so I know all about bad musicians. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, so, you, so what instruments did you play in, in band? Uh, I, played, I played the viola. The viola. Okay. So you did have some kind of a classical background and that yeah. is that kind of what you made the connection between your father's woodworking and, and, and being in the orchestra. Uh, yeah. Um, Cause I did enjoy playing in like a group and everything, you know, classical music was never my favorite, but it was kind of what we had. Um, so yeah, I, that was kind of where it got put together. My school also um, had a robotics team so every year the team would build a robot to compete in some competition they would put together and i got to be a part of that as well so well, that's really cool and i think you know one of the things i think there's been a trend i don't know if you you're aware of it but you know just some of the media things that i follow it, it, there seems to be a uh uh there's deep, uh, like a, a resurgence or like a uh they're kind of a pushing again now for people to reconsider trade schools and things. I think partially just because college is so ridiculously expensive now that, it, you know, and for a lot of people, uh, 
uh, depending what you go for, it really doesn't, you know, pay off and you just end up being in debt forever. And so, you know, and, and unfortunately, I think, you know, for, for decades prior, you know, they were so pushing college on everybody that uh, a lot of the trades were being ignored, you know. Um, so obviously, though, when people think trade school, they're thinking, you know, plumber, electrician, those kind of things. But it, it's very interesting that you went for, uh, uh, you know, now, is it just um, like violin repair or do you like, are you able to build these from scratch? Yeah, so at the school, we mostly focus on making. We'll do a little bit of repair and restoration and stuff, but that um, that's a, a whole thing that, you know, you can't teach everything in a um, in a handful of years. So. But going back to your thing about the trades, I definitely agree. I think, I think I'm kind of on the beginning of that swing back towards it that, you know, when I was going through high school, it was definitely college 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 was pushed and very little was talked about you know trades but i'm i'm seeing that more and more as well so hope hopefully that kind of comes back because we need those trades yeah and i know you're you're planning on maybe moving back to indiana but if there's any way you could stay in chicago you want to especially if you're entering into a trade thing um because they have some fine apprentice programs uh and uh I've known a lot of tradesmen uh, in in various bricklaying, uh, electricians, of course, uh, plumbers, and uh, uh, they're all absolute um, masters. Uh, the people that I know, especially the electricians, um, they're very sharp, and you learn fiber optics in in apprentice programs, and with with that, and uh, yeah. It, I hope I, I don't want to see you leave town anyway because everybody says oh I'll be back and then and they never do they never come back. Um, the only one that keeps leaving and coming back seems to be Joe. I was going to say the only Tony, one that I don't want to come back. Huh? <laughs> I was going to say Tony, if everybody keeps leaving and not coming back, you got to start asking yourself some questions. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Probably make it clearer that the problem is everybody else. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that seems to be the common thing nowadays. Blame everybody else. Um, there is, I'll just take a, a, minor, a minor digression here. There, there is a cool school I saw on, on the PBS NewsHour, and this was a couple of years ago. But it, it's on the, it's a technically a four year school on the. I think it's like in South Carolina. It's, it's definitely on the, the East Coast and South, but it's also a trade school, and so they basically you're getting like business education, like how to run and open a business, but you also are doing hands-on things. So people are being like stonemasons or carpenters or like, and, and you know, wrought iron, these guys, and they showed them like forging metal and doing all these cool things. And I was like, man, where was this when I was a kid? That would have been the coolest. So I think you end up with a four-year degree, but the idea is they want you to be able to go out there and do the work, but also have the business background to run them. And then, you know, and they showed all these restoration projects that these uh, kids were working on and things. And it was, it was really awesome. It looked like a really exciting school. Uh, if you like to get your hands on, you know, but also then come out of it with uh, a degree. I think a lot of, a lot of kids who uh, maybe are not academic, you know, because that takes a certain type of discipline, um, but could thrive in an environment like that. You know, once, you know, they work with their hands and, and things like that. And um, just, yeah, there's a lot of interesting schools out there. If you look for them, that they're not the traditional, you know, four year, uh, you know, liberal arts kind of a thing. So, um, so can we ask what school you're, you're going to for this? Yeah. So it's called the, uh, it's got a very creative name. It's called the Chicago school of violin making. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's uh, it's over in Skokie. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's funny, but no, that's cool. So it's strictly just violins. Uh, so we do violas and cellos as well. So we do the kind of classical string family. So like small violins and then big violins. Yeah. There was a guy on the corner of Belmont, basically on the corner of Belmont. Now, I, if I remember correctly, it was um, Narragansett or it could have been Oak Park, but it was Bob Gorney's custom guitars. Okay. He's gone now. I don't, I don't mean, I don't know if he's dead or not. I never was actually in there. I always wanted to go in there, but he made his own guitars. Oh, that's good. Cool. Yeah. And I talked to two guys because I was a musician that had guitars made by him. And he was world class. I mean, the guy was phenomenal. Um, so I don't know if he's still around, but if you ever, if he is, and you want to branch out and learn guitar making, he'd be the guy to talk to. That's cool. I'd love to. I'd love to dip my toes into it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you'd be surprised. Uh, yeah. Now I want to. Start, I'm going to kind of go jump all over the place, but so you. Um, you, I want to jump back to the fact that you said you got into, uh, was it like more formal ballroom dances, dancing then, or what other I, dance? I did, yeah. So I, um, I started, I started with the high school, the swing club, um, and then swing dancing, not the, not the sex thing. Um, <laughs> Swingers, yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, my, my parents actually met, uh, ballroom dancing. Hmm. And it had been it had been a long time since they'd done it, and my dad decided to go back. Um, and when he did that, he brought my sister and I with him um, just to try it out, and we both just went went nuts for it. So you know, for for a while, we were both there, like just about every night of the week, doing anything they'd let us do. So, so I don't know much about ballroom dancing. There's different styles, though, right? Within that. There is, there's like, at least that are common, there's about like nine different styles. Um, and, you know, when people, usually when people say ballroom, they think a lot more of the formal stuff, like waltz and tango and that sort of thing. Um, and they have their own sort of codified versions of the other dances, um, which is cool. And it's great that folks can kind of get those all in one place, but... Um, yeah, when I when I came to Chicago, I kind of experienced what the um, I don't want to say like true versions of those other dances are because that I don't know, that's doesn't quite ring right. But um, yeah, kind of the how those other dances were things like salsa, cha cha, um, stuff like that. You know, if you watch if you watch a ballroom person do salsa, and you watch like a you know, a different kind of person who learned salsa the traditional way, they're going to look way different. So. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Once in a blue moon years ago, shortly, well, when I first moved to Chicago, I would play now and then at a ballroom on uh, Lyons, Illinois. I think it was countryside Lyons. And the guy that owned it was a guy named Bobby Rapolo, if I remember correctly. He was a ballroom dancer. He was phenomenal. But he also played pipe organ. He had a pipe organ in the joint, okay, for the ballroom dancing and shit, because it was a ballroom dancing place. Yeah. And uh, while I didn't play ballroom music, I played in a more variety-oriented. Actually, I played 
uh, polkas and waltzes there, you know, on the drums. It's not on the accordion. And, uh, but anyhow, I, I think he moved out of town. Oh, the place is long gone. Um, but he, uh, he wasn't an old man. I was 24, 23, 20, between 23 and 25. He's probably 40 then. Um, but I used to watch him dance. Smooth as silk on yeah. the dance floor. Unbelievable. My mother, I told you, was a professional dancer. I can't yeah. dance, but shit, man, this guy was good. That's cool. So I want to go back. Yeah, I'm kind of kind of, kind of processing what you said. So it's kind of interesting, the idea of like, I don't know, I'm going to mix terms up here, but like people who learn traditional salsa, you know, or orga organic or whatever you want to call it, um, yeah. that that changes when you get into ballroom and they kind of codify it and make it formal. Is that kind of what you're saying? That there's kind of like a, uh, those are the kind of differences you were seeing? Yeah, yeah, I guess I wasn't um, super, super clear, but yeah, what kind of happened, you know, to my, I'm not um, super knowledgeable on the history, but to, you know, as a rough kind of thing, um, yeah, these ballroom, um, one guy named Arthur Murray, um, he, and, you know, um, Arthur Murray Studios are huge and all over the place now. They're like, I've seen the, those, I know those, yeah. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're all over the place. Um, that's kind of like the ballroom place to go to. Um, when he, I think when he started those, he kind of looked at all these dances that were, you know, passed down as like a cultural thing and in various different ways. And he wanted to make it palatable for everybody. And so the way you do that is kind of put together a curriculum um, and say, all right, you know, everyone's going to teach it this way. So everyone can learn it this way. And here's how we're going to market um, to check to see how people know what they're doing and things like that. So that kind of in doing that, he, I think he brought, you know, versions of those dances to a lot more people because every, everybody knows Arthur Murray, um, or at least that chain. And, um, but, you know, also in doing that, he made them all kind of look the same and not, it's not always how the dance originally looked. So it's interesting because Cleveland is the polka capital of, of, of the country and Slovenian style polka. Okay. Uh, and there, and you know, everybody knows how to Slovenian polka, you know, and uh, which is very different musically, and the dancing is completely different than Polish polkas. Chicago has a small Slovenian polka thing, and I hooked up with them when I first moved to Chicago because they're like, "Oh man, you're from Cleveland. You you played with Frankie Yankovic, you played with Joey Miskil, and all these. I played with like the rock stars of polka music. Okay, the best. Yeah. So, um. You're right, because when you seen, like I mentioned, getting back to this Bobby Rapolo, when he would polka, no, it wasn't, it was classical polka. I mean, it was ballroom polka. He, it wasn't what I was used to. It wasn't ethnic pol uh, uh, Slovenian style polka. Um, and it certainly wasn't the Polish style. Polish does a lot of stomps and a lot of hopping and things. Uh, I, I was not a Polish polka player. I played Slovenian style mainly. And Croatian with the Tamboritsans. So I can confer with what you're saying. Um, just like the Italian mazurkas. A ballroom mazurka is not the way we Italians folk dance uh, a mazurka. It's different. Right. Yeah. So did, and you said you didn't know the history, but are you worried? So did 
what we consider modern ballroom dancing, does that all go back to Arthur Murray? How long has he been around? Because I didn't know, you know, is that something that's been around for a hundred years or something? Or I don't know how far back that goes. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I do know the, I do know the answer to that. Um, and no, ballroom dancing has been around for a long time. Uh, do some research, both of you guys. Uh, there was a couple around the turn of the century, husband and wife named Vernon and Irene Castle. Okay. Um, Vernon actually, I believe was from Canada. Irene was from America. Um, and they were, they barnstormed. I mean, they went all across the country uh, and the world uh, demonstrating different ballroom styles, the tango, the polka, the cha-cha-cha, all of that. Let me put it in perspective, just how popular these people were. They made a life story about them, a movie. And guess who was in the movie? Guess who played them? Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. That tells you how popular Vernon and Irene Castle was. Now, I don't want to give away what happened to their lives because the the movie is very interesting. It it's it just you got to watch the movie. It doesn't give them their whole life, at least not all of it. I can't get into it because I don't want to give it away. Um, but that's actually my favorite Fred and Ginger movie. To be honest with you, I love the movie. It's very poignant. It's a love story. Uh, and, and all of that jazz. So yeah, Joe, to answer your question, ballroom dancing, because I learned all, a lot of this from my mother, from my mother who did all of that jazz, tap, all, all, all of that, you know, rock and roll. She did it all. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. But, but ballroom dancing has been, um, it was very popular, Joe. Mm. Yeah, I, I, like it's, it's one of those things that I've always known it's been there, but I have no idea how far it goes back and how yeah. that translate it from i guess like you said all these traditional folk styles of dancing and which folk style like you know is um which ones they decided to use and which ones they decided to exclude i mean it's actually probably a very fascinating topic um to delve into so um yeah i'll have to do some research on that um yeah probably probably the best example um of how how the dance changed from one to the other if you look up um, Argentine tango versus like a ballroom competition tango, supposedly the ballroom competition, like they call it American tango now, came from Argentine tango, but they look so different. I have no idea how it happened. Um, I need to do more research on that, but um, that's probably the best example I can think of of how much a dance can change like that. They're both they're both beautiful. I love them both. But. That's interesting that they they wouldn't almost recognize them then, huh? Yeah. Wow. Um, so now you're saying like the swing kind of helped you with some of your martial arts training. How about did any of the the, the ballroom train uh, workouts or trainings help you as far as any of the you know footwork with your uh, martial arts or conditioning or what what elements helped it tra- translate over? Yeah. So um, definitely the working with another person and learning to kind of manipulate where another person goes. Um, of course with the dance, it's cooperative. Whereas, you know, when you're like wrestling, it's certainly not. So, you know, it's not like a perfect fit, but learning how to pay attention to another body and move somebody else around, um, 
and that sensitivity that you develop to another person really helps. I imagine too, like just the the training aspect of it, where an instructor is going to give you, you're watching instructor, they they move several things and you have to imitate that with your body. So you have you just have to learn how to visually see what one body is doing and then transcribe that into your own body. That's got to be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Like I like to say I'm a professional at uh, monkey see, monkey do, um, which you know helps out when you're picking up on things in class. Yeah, um, it's definitely like when you start thinking about mechanics, you know, um, like one of the things I learned, you know, from doing, you know, I'd say unarmed combat training for on and off for years, uh, then going to Forteza and when they're starting to move or turn their hips, I know exactly like are looking at their foot placement. Like I just kind of know where to look to say, okay, how are they moving their body? How are they shifting their weight? You know, and things like that. Um, it's, it's definitely, it starts, you start to kind of pick up that habit of like, learning how to learn we talk about that a lot yeah um, what else was i going to mention so um like how about things like uh the rhythm aspect of it were there like did you have trouble from one dance to, like, like did one of them give you more trouble than another for any particular reason uh do you mean like dance wise or dance wise or yeah dance wise it's just kind of seeing if like any of them were peculiar or did did they kind of like once you had one, you kind of had the foundation and you found the transition easier to the others. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I was kind of, because when I started doing that, and that's a similarity I, I've got between, for me, as far as with dancing and with martial arts, I'm just like a kid in a candy store. I, I want to try them all. So um, as early as they would let me, I was doing as many, you know, as <laughs> as they could teach. Um so I think that I think that approach in general kind of has the effect of you you start slower because you're trying to do a bunch of things at once, but eventually once things click, I think it kind of helps speed things along after you get to a certain point. That's good. That's kind of answers my question because I was going to say, did you ever find that a detriment? Because I find that with myself that I have too many interests and this might not even be martial arts or school related but like you know i'm trying to play the guitar i'm going to school i'm trying to do martial arts training and you know it gets frustrating a little bit because i'll see people who focus on the one thing you know and they're they're, they're skyrocketing where i'm like still putzing around a little bit but then i and i when i try to focus at least for me what i find is like I'll, i can feel that I, like the impulse of like oh i'm missing out i really want to be doing x y and z as well like it's hard for me to put something aside to focus for a, a length of period so is that kind of where you were at too where you just like bring it all on i just want to keep bouncing around oh yeah i know i know exactly how you feel like i i describe it for myself as i get like palate fatigue for you know pick a thing like you know if i'm just you know boxing for too long then i get i get tired of you know well getting punched in the face and then i want to go wrestle and then you know um, so that, that happens to me with just about everything. Um, and then, um, uh, so, uh, like I said, I'm going to be jumping around a lot. Let's jump back to the musical instruments. Um, so like, what are some of the differences between, you know, the, you know, obviously they're all in the same family of string instruments, but what are some of the things that kind of like, you know, a lay person might not know as far as like what goes into them? and their differences 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, everyone, everyone knows what a violin is. Um, and, you know, I mentioned that, um, like in school, I played the viola, which people don't usually know as much. Um, the viola is just a little bit bigger. It's about a fifth down, so it's got slightly different strings. Um, you know, for example, um, sometimes you can tune them to different different things. Like I think orchestras in Europe tune their A to a slightly different frequency than orchestras in America. I might be wrong about that one though. Um, I'm not, I'm not super well versed in my theory, but other than that, um, a lot of it is like when we're making is really subtle, um, like stylistic things, um, like how the corners are shaped, you know, what do the, how, how curved are the sound holes? Um, so sometimes I wonder how much that actually matters. <laughs> it does because, and especially with the tuning. So, like, generally here, it's A440, um, but some places will tune it high, 442. And that just gives a little more tension, not even physically, but to the sound. You know, it's there is a difference, okay? Um, or when it's tuned lower, kind of changes it. It's, an, it's interesting because I, I want to mention Luciano Pavarotti, the, the great Italian tenor. Um, I knew a man who played in his or in an orchestra that he was, you know, they, the orchestra was backing up Pavarotti and he was the accordionist. Okay. And now Pavarotti has a full orchestra and he's got the accordionist and Pavarotti, while not known as a musician, his ear, he perfect pitch, um, his ear was so in tune he could tell that the accordion was not tuned properly. It, it, the, he needed it in a different frequency than for, uh, than what it was. And so it wasn't a shot on the guy's playing ability. The accordion just wasn't in tune uh, to his ear. So he literally, my friend had to literally call somebody on the phone and, and try to find one um, – that was slightly detuned uh, for uh, tuned to 438 as opposed to 440 because Pavarotti wanted it detuned, uh, which you can't do on an accordion. Okay. I mean, you, you have to, you have to already, I mean, how, yeah, you can tune it. Yes. You can tune an accordion to different frequencies. You can't do it on the spot. Okay. It needs a technician to do it. It has it involving with the reeds and everything. It's a complicated, costly project. Whereas a guitar, you just slightly tune it differently, bring a piano tuner out, he tunes it differently. You can do that on the spot. Yeah. So, yeah. So my friend had to actually call around to find an accordion that had 440, uh, 438 tuning. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's impressive on Pavarotti's part. I got I to tell you. Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, what kind of tools like when we come like if i was to visit the school or the shop does it look like a standard wood shop with like you know uh band saws and things like that or, or is it more like um like old kind of traditional woodworking tools i mean or do you have the mix of stuff it's a lot it's a lot of uh, hand tools so we have a couple of band saws and a drill press and stuff um but most of you know most of the things that we work with are like carving knives 
and small chisels and gouges and things like that. Um, I'm just picking up things I have here on my desk behind me. Like, you know, we use this to carve out the inlay. There's two little knives here. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of hand tools and a lot of, a lot of ones I'd never heard about because I spent the majority of my woodworking experience before this was power tools. Um, so like that was definitely something that took me by surprise when I got to school was how, how precise they needed you to be um, and just how much time it took to do things. Um, and also how hard it was to just get something flat and square. Um, you know, to make something like perfectly flat and then make it 90 degrees so you can have a consistent thing to work off of for the rest of the steps. Um, yeah. So I, would was, you be considered a luthier? Yeah. Oh, okay. For, for the layperson, what does that mean exactly? Uh, so a luthier, um, I think it originally meant someone who made lutes, but now it's just, it's anyone who makes instruments. Huh, very interesting. And so like, what what is it? Do you, is there different kinds of wood that is, are used depending on what sound you're trying to get? Or is it always, you know, what kind of wood do you use, I guess, basically? Yeah. Uh, hang on. Let me grab a visual aid here. He's going to come back with a tree. That's right. Yeah. Let me, let me just go chop a tree down real quick. Um, so we use a few different things. Kind of the, the big, the common ones that we use are maple and spruce. Um, so here's just a little gouge, but um, hold on, let me draw the crap out. Is maple is maple a hardwood? I don't maple, know. Maple is a hardwood, and you know, everyone likes not, right. Spruce is kind of uh, oh, interesting, cool. Yeah, so this is the so the maple is for the back, and uh, mm. let's see. I tried to I tried to pick a less flamed piece, and of course the lamp's not making it easy, but you can see kind of the differential yeah. differences in color. That's the grain going different directions, which looks great, but it's you know, makes it a little bit tougher to work with. Um, and then we'll use spruce for the insides and then the top, which I don't have with me. Um, and yeah, maple is very hard and then spruce is a lot softer. They make a lot of drums out of maple. Um, or, you know, when it, when it comes to the wood, <clears throat> um, I had a, I had a maple set that I lost when I lost my gym. Um, very nice. <clears throat> That's cool. So, like, what is the sonic property of maple? Like, how does that, what does that bring? That's a good question. Um, that's a part where I'm not quite as knowledgeable about. Um, you know, it's got, and it's going to change a little bit based on the different, um, each different plate. Because one thing that we do do, and some people are more careful about this than others, is you can tune your plates. So there's certain, there's certain parts where you can hold the plate and tap it and it, you know, gives a certain frequency and there's certain like desirable ranges um, when you, you know, tap the plate next to a tuner or something. Um, and you can, you can kind of fuss with the, the thicknesses of the plate throughout to get that, to give you a range of what you want. But as far as, as far as I know, we only have sort of approximate knowledge of how that makes things more desirable or not. Um, there's a there's a lot that goes into the kind of how the instrument sounds um, that at least personally I have very I have approximate knowledge of many things in that regard. <laughs> like another another big part is how 
the arch of the instrument, so how it's curved, you know, this way. Yeah. That all kind of affects things. Um, like generally, if you go flatter, that will produce kind of a a louder sound. So if you've got a soloist, they'll want a more flatter arched instrument. Um, but if you have it a little higher and rounder, that gives you a softer, but a little bit more of a richer tone. Um, and a big part of that is what we call the setup as well. So things like, let me just grab another instrument because I have a few laying around. Um, so things like the fingerboard, the different strings you use, the bridge inside, there's a post as well. Like a bunch of little things like that will also affect the sound in different ways. And those can be kind of adjusted to the player's liking. Um, they also use maple for a lot of cue shafts, uh, cue, you know, pool cue. Uh, do you also make the bows? You can. I don't. Um, I don't know anything about bow making yet, but um, that is that is something that I eventually like to get to. So you're you're saying you were graduating in June, but apparently there's still a lot to learn. So what? Explain. Absolutely. Go ahead and explain that. Yeah. So. Um, essentially kind of going through this program and it's supposed to be a um, it's normally a about a three-year program i'm a uh, i'm a super duper senior but uh, you know that will give you kind of the basics you need to get a shop job um so you know you'll know the basics of how to make an instrument you can make one that sounds pretty all right you'll have an idea of how to like set one up and do some basic repairs and then you can go to you know, a lot of people will go to a music shop and work, you know, get a job there doing things like restoration and repair. You know, a big thing for people starting out is working on rental instruments, you know, like especially the smaller ones that get rented out to students. Um, those just get the, the hell beat out of them. So that's where a lot of people cut their teeth is fixing those things. So like the um, next that's stage. interesting. Like the next stage is apprenticeship then kind of? Yeah. Um you know, like we get we get paid for that stuff, but mm -hmm. it's yeah. Uh that's interesting. So I mean ultimately, yeah. So I guess what are the different at certain points I think like the high end musicians, are they coming to certain people who, you know, like are there different level like specific levels that they call the the craftsmen or kind of, you know, it's not it's not so cut and dry as like, you know, you're an apprentice and then when you do X, you become a journeyman. You know, it's it's not like, you know, getting a, a judo belt or anything. Um, it will come with practice. It comes with people playing your instruments. Um, and a lot of it, or, you know, at least a certain, in my opinion, an unfortunate amount of it comes from name recognition as well. Um, of course, you got to get your name out there. But, you know, there are some makers who do make really good stuff, but their name adds a lot to the price tag. Not to disparage them for, you know, your large luthier audience, but. Yeah, no, we have a tremendous luthier audience. Uh, and it, it uh, <laughs> and the accordion world is like that too, because, you know, the accordion was the most popular instrument in America in the in the 40s, 1940s. It's hard to believe that, but it was far more popular than guitar even. Um, it was just gigantic. And uh, accordion, it was nothing for a, a, an accordion, a music school 
to have almost a thousand students playing the accordion, astronomical, but the quality of accordions, uh, you know, naturally Italy, but then they came to New York, the New York Excelsior accordions, and they were the finest in the world. And then they, they moved back to Italy and, and actually the quality in some really went down. Okay. It kind of went down a little bit, right? Uh, you think, oh my goodness, it couldn't have, it did. And, and believe it or not, now the market is flooded with, uh, knockoffs, Chinese brands, especially that have purchased or sometimes didn't even bother to purchase legendary names. This is getting to your point. Legendary names in the accordion world, you know, names, manufacturers that are long gone and they just took the name. And so now, you you, you know, you might buy a, a certain brand thinking, oh, my God, this is one of the greatest accordions ever made. No, it's a piece of shit. OK, 50 years ago, it was one of the best. Now it's one of the worst. So, yeah, I get it with the name recognition in your case may add something to it that. I mean, it may still be quality, but not as good as you think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, you know, especially especially with like modern makers, I don't I don't want to disparage any of the, um, you know, the fantastic makers that are out there. They could certainly, you know, run circles around my work. But like especially with the like factory instruments and stuff, I've had a bunch of people come come to me and say, hey, you know, um, my, my grandpa played the violin and we've had this in the attic for a long time. And it says it's a Stradivarius. Do you want to take a look <laughs> at it? Um, and what I've seen so many like cheap, you know, factory instruments with labels that say it's a Stradivarius model. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. Pure junk because a real Strat, as you know, is going to be worth millions. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I would be surprised if they weren't all accounted for by this point. So again, I know, of course, but could you explain the significance of Stradivarius to our listening audience? I mean, I've heard the term, the name, of course, but um, yeah, explain what you mean by the, the value there. Yeah, so he's probably the best known and, you know, arguably the one of the best violin makers, full stop. You know, he um, he got his start in Cremona a long time ago in the 1600s, 1700s. Um, I'm sure my teacher, when he listens to this, will be very disappointed in my lack of knowledge of dates, but oh well. Um, yeah, he um, he makes some of the best instruments, and we have we're lucky to have a bunch of examples still around, um, you know, in various states of um, being kept up. Um, you know, he made a a lot of instruments for like, kings and noble noblemen and things like that. Um, yeah, he's. So when you say strata, well, so the Stradivarius term can be used in a couple of ways, it sounds like. But for the people who know, it's the ones that he himself actually made. Or did he have like a did he have a factory or a company that he founded that made other valuable ones? To my knowledge, Strad worked pretty much alone. You know, there were there were um, around that time, there were two other like families in Cremona that were making top tier instruments. Um, there was the Amati family and there was the Guaneri family. And, you know, you'll see labels with Amati and Guaneri of different, like different first names. Um, and so, you know, there's, 
there's a little bit of variance there like um so you know there's there's some different folks under those names as well that were all great makers but as as far as i know i think strad either actually did work alone or didn't let his apprentices put names on his labels because mm. an interesting thing around that time is that before you know with uh before stradivarius the luthery trade was kept within families um but then when the black plague hit and you know killed a lot of people um it got to be so small that they started a kind of a guild system with that so they started letting other people in um, so that was how Stradivarius got his start with instruments, was he worked with the Amati family for a while. Mm, interesting. And it's so do they, they have a rough idea how many are left out there? I'm assuming there's, you know, a finite. Someone does. I don't, I, I've forgotten the number. Uh, it's, it's more than you think. I mean, it's not like five or six, you know, there, it, there, there's, there's a vast number and, they, and they'll, and they'll stay around. Uh, because what I find fascinating about Stradivarius uh, violins is that they're still performing, okay? They're yeah. in the hands of artists that are still literally performing on stage. So it's more than a uh, museum piece. Um, one lady that I knew, God rest her soul, Lee Sash, her husband was Leon Sash, considered by many the greatest accordionist of them all. Uh, Jerry Sigler, my teacher, studied with Leon. Ronnie Moon, my teacher, studied with Leon. And Lee, his wife, I never met Leon. He died in the 70s. Um, Lee and I, um, she had a Rashiani bass, uh, upright bass. She played upright yeah. bass. And uh, it was from 16-something, 1600-and-something, okay? And, yeah, she still played and recorded with it. There's recordings of Leon Sash playing with Lee Morgan Sash, his wife, on it, playing that bass. That's Unbelievable. Cool. Think about that, Joe, um, that this stuff is 400 years old, these violins, and still going strong. That's an amazing craftsmanship, especially when you think, like, back in the day at the end of a concert, they'd usually smash them, you know, right. make a big finale that they survived as long as they did. Um, but you're timeless mm -hmm. like these violins. True, true. Yeah, uh, uh, far outlast us. You know, well, now we're we're going to live forever in this podcast, you know, so we're out there, <laughs> you know, when they... Well, when they we're being to the universes, you know. There's more than one universe, you know, the multiverse. We're 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 beaming to the multiverse and in, in in different laws of physics, you know, uh there's probably some universe out there or another world way out there, Joe, where you would not be considered attractive. Uh, that seems a little far fetched, Tony. Doesn't yeah. it though? Right. Yeah, oh. well, yeah you're yeah. right. In the that, realm of science, science fiction, you know, that's when yeah, we, yeah. We, we don't delve into science fiction here much. But, yeah, there, there's probably a universe where we're not that popular with this podcast. There's all kinds of weird permutations you can only think of. No, I don't uh, buy it. Great, no. Crazy when you think of it. Um, well, that's super cool. So, yeah. like, like, how's a lot, like, have you, from start to finish, have, how many, have you built a complete instrument? I'm assuming at this point you must have. Yeah, it's... Um... I've got, let's see, I've got three done and set up. I'm in the last stages of finishing up a fourth. Um, and then, you know, this, this 
half thing is my number five. Um, and then my, my graduation, my graduation exam is I need to build a sixth one in about six, in six weeks. Okay. And so that's considered like a reasonable amount, like, like a, a professional level. Well, I shouldn't say professional, but that's considered like a good frame of time. Like, no, that's that way like, too fast. That's way too fast. Yeah. It's um, yeah. They, you know, they don't, they don't expect, I mean, they expect, you know, you can't turn out shit, but you know, that's um, you wouldn't like commission someone to build you a new instrument and expect it in six weeks. That would be pretty unreasonable. What's the lead time? What's What's the normal? It it, it kind of I've heard a few different you know numbers thrown out from different people, but all the ranges from you know professional makers I've heard have been, been within like maybe a hundred to two hundred hours of working on it at the bench. Um, and you know there's different things in there like sometimes you got to let glue dry, you got to let varnish. Uh. Like the process of varnishing the instrument takes you know a number of weeks depends on what all you're doing with it but that's of it takes about an hour maybe to throw on a coat of varnish and then you got to let it dry for a day and a half per day well i don't know about musical instruments but because i never had one custom made but i mean i i i i I bought some custom made accordions but they weren't custom made for me but in the pool cue world uh another reason that it takes a while is simultaneous builds so, you know, like, they're not just building one queue. They're yeah. building how many? 20, maybe? So that really adds on the lead time, too, to shit. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there, there are guys who will, there are makers who will, it's still, you know, nice handmade stuff, but they will be making, like, you know, three, four, five at a time sometimes. Um, they'll just do the same step, you know, five times on all of them and then move on to the next thing. Now, do you find uh, that automation, machine-made, uh, it, it can be the equal? Because I say that because, um, well, let's take pool cues. Uh, the holy grail of pool cues, the Stradivarius of pool cues, is a balabushka. I own a balabushka. Okay. I've let people shoot with the balabushka. And I don't normally tell them that it's a balabushka. Uh, and it just did not, it, it, the cues nowadays are much better. They're just far better than this balabushka. Okay. And when I tell somebody, you just shot with a balabushka, they're like, really? I mean, you could see like, wow, it was kind of like a letdown. Um, do you find that in violins that either, uh, mass produced violins or, cus- or, or, or living craftsmen? make superior violins to the old to the old timers the and that's kind of an ongoing debate the factories the factory made like mass produced stuff that i've seen you know in like my small pool of experience has been getting better um you know a little better than some of us are comfortable with um but you know there's still if you want to get the most out of an instrument if you want something you know truly special you're still going to want handmade um you know at least at least for now maybe maybe one day i'll get replaced with a cnc machine um, hopefully that'll happen after i'm dead but um as far as you know comparing modern stuff to a stradivarius um there yeah i think it's i think it's kind of a similar thing that there are people who 
make instruments just as good. And they've done some blind tests of they've had modern maker, they've had like five modern made instruments and five strads and amadis and things. And they've played them and there were people who listened who couldn't tell the difference. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all because, uh, you know, just based on like accordions, my, my, my limited uh, uh, thing, I, I know somebody, well, I used to know somebody years ago in Cleveland who had the world's most expensive accordion, and it's still like that pretty much. It's called a Honer Gola, Gola, G-O-L-A, made by Honer uh, out of Germany. It's a German accordion, and he would bring it out very rarely. And he brought it out one day. This is back in Cleveland. I was relatively new to the accordion, but I was already playing jazz. So I was over 21 at the time because that's when I really dove into jazz accordion. Um, and I played it, and I just did I, – I wasn't all blown away by it. I just really wasn't, all right? Uh, and even my accordion teacher, Ronnie Moon, who, he had this custom-made Excelsior when he was playing with the Three Sons. And, and – um, his his Excelsior was far better, I thought, than the uh, than the Gola. So, yeah, I, I, I. So it sounds like it's the same thing in the violin world. Yeah, and you know, again, I I don't want to um, disparage anyone. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, I've I've been fortunate enough to see and handle and hear several you know strads and instruments from those old makers, and they definitely still you know they definitely still hold up. They're still. They're still among the best, um, but you know I think uh, we we've got modern instruments that can go toe to toe with them now. Well, you know, some of it, the the aged wood or the age the wood the wood the quality of the wood. Now I'm not saying wood was better 500 years ago, but the I know like with pool cues, um, you can't rush. Uh, things okay you got to let that i don't know enough about it to talk educated about it but yeah there's something with the curing of the wood um and there's also something with the moisture uh the humidity so for example the philippines the filipinos are just ungodly good at playing pool so they make cue sticks and and you can get some of the Cue makers uh, from the Philippines at a good price, a fair, I mean, like almost like too hard to believe. But one of the problems is by the time they ship it here, it's warped because they're made for their tropical kind of conditions in the Philippines. And, and over here, then they, they don't, you know, so you got to be careful because sometimes the wood will, will warp on you. Yeah, and that absolutely affects um, is something that affects instruments as well. Um, you know, especially it's most noticeable when an instrument is like first strung up. Like my first two violins, um, you know, that I completed. I don't remember when, but um, you know, when they were very first put under that string tension and played, they sound a lot different. Luckily, a lot better now. Um, so yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a process. Is you know the instrument sort of opens up and comes alive a little bit. Imagine what Joe's going to look like twenty years from now. It boggles the mind. That's right. I mean, still a I'll ten. Be, out of 10. Oh, I mean, I'll be dead. I won't know, but you know, it will. I mean, just the thought of it. I got Joe. You're going to get better. Can you <laughs> believe that? <laughs> 
Well, I do moisturize, so I, I, I do <laughs> soft life. Um, uh, I want to switch back to dancing a little bit. So you you actually are at a point now where you're a dance instructor. Is that correct? Yeah, I've been teaching dance for, I mean, technically three years, but like a year, year and a half of that was COVID where I wasn't actually working. <laughs> yeah. So where do you teach at? It's a studio here in Chicago called May I Have This Dance. Um, we recently moved locations, so I still have to plug in the address of my phone to get there, so I can't quite tell <laughs> folks where it is. But yeah, um, for the for our vast army of listeners, it's um, it's a great place. We do any kind of just about any kind of partner dancing you can um, you can think of. We do you know, ballroom, we do Latin, we do swing. Uh, yeah. Did you ever dabble in tap or ballet? I've done a very little bit of both of those. Um, you know, a lot of, I wish, one of the things I wish I had done when I was younger was ballet. Um, because they're, people with ballet backgrounds are consistently some of the most graceful and best athletes I've seen. Yeah. Um, so I've worked a little bit of that, but um, it's it's not something I've quite had the the time to that's wrong. I technically had the time, but I just didn't prioritize it. You know, it's interesting because I've heard some, and again, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but just some, I picked up on some criticism of ballet that in some ways people, and maybe this is true, I guess, anything you do to the extreme, but like people have done things like, you know, you hear about them breaking down their bodies and, and moving in, you know, like in ways that may look beautiful, but then are biomechanically kind of unsound. <laughs> um so um i've i've heard the same things i don't i don't know enough about it i mean you know i've definitely heard stories of you know hardcore ballet folks and it it seems like at that level when you're like you know people will take children and they will study it from the time they can like walk and then they you know that's that's their whole lives um that seems you know a little fucked up to me the some of the stories i hear but yeah especially with i think it's point where they're like on the the real tips of their toes i've looked yeah. up some you know if you see pictures of their, their feet after that that's kind of ugh. so i have a personal story so my wife sasha is a grew up doing ballet lessons and um doing a lot of things like point and at one point we did a rock climbing class together and um i was really good at like the artificial gyms you know where they had like kind of the fake holds you could hold on but when the at the end of the class they actually take you out i think they took us to devil's lake which is i think near wisconsin or something like that and they we did and i was really struggling on real rock like you know once i didn't have the artificial hold but she because of her point like she had no fear of jamming her foot and toe like into a small crack and putting all her weight on it oh wow. uh, like she yeah she like i was really impressed by that like she just had but the ultimately the joke was on her so at the end of the day she took off her shoe and her big toenail flew off <laughs> oh god yeah. so like it was kind of one of those like where you kind of clearly she learned how to ignore the pain and, and, and put all this weight on there but it was like oh, maybe it's good that i didn't uh really go for it like you then but <laughs> yeah it 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 sounds to me a bit like um uh stories you'll hear of like karate guys who do all the like hand conditioning and stuff and then they'll like you know pound bricks to dust and then can't hold a pen 
Well, and I think that's a big risk for jujitsu guys too. They have to be very careful. I mean, I see a lot of guys, you know, uh, just taping their hands, taping because the, uh, or judo, anybody who basically trains with a gi, I think has to be careful, you know, uh, because yeah, you get that someone popping your grip when you have a death grip on some clothes, uh, you know, especially as I've gotten older, man, you know, like, you know, the ability to use, uh, to write my name on a, you know, a piece of paper or use forks and knives. That's important to me, you know, as I've yeah, yeah. Older. and you just see that like, uh, uh, a coach who will remain nameless. I saw, um, they had trouble making a fist. Really? They, yeah. They were like, uh, cause their hand had been so now it might've, it was a temporary situation. I think that, but, uh, yeah, you got uh, proceed with caution, I guess, as a word of advice. If, you know, if you're having to tape something up a lot all the time, I think that's why it's good sometimes to work some no-gi. You know, if you're a gi person, switch it up a little bit because uh, that grip game can be, yeah, can be very adverse. And, you know, uh, arthritis is a real thing. So anyways, that's my person, that's my uh, public service announcement. Yes. For- no, I agree uh, with you. Um you know, I've gotten a little bit of that just after some of sometimes when I'll compete um, just for short periods of time. I call it Lego hands because um, my hands will just sometimes lock up like a Lego person. And I can't I can't do much with them for a second. But, mm. you know, but I also think you make a very good point about training gi versus no gi. Um, I think there's huge benefits to both. Yeah. And uh yeah, actually, I was going to, you know, one of the things when I first met you and we were talking about your career, that was the, one of the first things I was like, oh, geez, aren't you worried about your hands? Because I'm sure the fine motor skills, some of the carving you're doing, that sensitivity you need there. I mean, that's got to be something that is in the back of your mind when you're training, you know? Somewhat. I mean, especially like with my career, I'm, I mean, I'm charging headlong into arthritis one way or another. Um, <laughs> I actually find that um, some strength training, especially I do, I do a lot of grip work partially because I have tiny hands and I, you know, grip strength is something I need to work a little extra to develop anyhow. But um, like doing some, doing strength training has helped relieve some of the pain on my wrists and such I've noticed. Well, we happen to have a person on this podcast who's pretty well versed in grip strength. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I got a compliment yesterday on my grip when I went and picked up the exercise bike. The guy's like, Jesus Christ, you're like a gorilla. (laughs) um yeah Yeah. but you know what i mean all of us no matter what athletics you're in uh well here my anesthesiologist when i just had my surgery he comes into the room before to introduce himself older guy and he said he was a former professional tennis player and i would he's got to be in his 60s now um he had both both knees replaced. Okay, Ooh. right. Um, so you know when you play or when you perform uh, participate in any sport at any high level, you're going to get injuries. Like I, I got injury. Everything I got is is you know sports related, but the wrestling probably has actually built up the strength to keep me going. If I was getting hurt doing something else, I probably would have you know been gone already. So don't get discouraged. Uh, I mean, I'm not a fan of the gi just because, you know, it's to me, it's just not, it's not practical. Even when they try to say, oh, you wear a jacket. Yeah, you grab my jacket in the street, I'm, I'm pounding your face. Okay, so um, don't let that be a uh, deterrent, though. Um, 
because you 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 could get hurt doing anything, you know. But yeah, I mean, with Joe saying about ballet being structurally wrong, I don't know that. I don't know. I don't. I I, I don't know that. Uh, I would not participate in something that is obviously structurally wrong. Um, and I see this with the grappling or the boxing that I teach. People are doing things that are going to lead to injury. Yeah, I'll say, hey, stop. Don't do that. Yeah. And, you know, life's going to kill you anyway, right? I don't want to spend, you know, I don't want to spend my whole life not doing things I'll enjoy because it might smart a little bit. Yeah, you don't want, you know, because you'll hit the wall. Like, you'll get my age. You're going to slow down. Uh, Things will get in the way or life itself children or, or grandchildren or w- wives, you know, uh, whatever. Yeah. Enjoy it while you can. That's what I tried to do. I mean, I, I had a lot of things that I enjoyed doing like Joe, the difference between Joe and I, it seems Joe does a lot of things simultaneously. I did things in spurts. So I got, you know, good at, let's say the drums. I was a professional musician already before I, on the drums before I started playing the accordion. Um, I shot pool, uh, or I, I, I started boxing before I started to wrestle. So, you know, I, I, so I, I had spurts of years of one thing. Okay. I got competent. Now I'm going to years of this years of that. Um, but you have that advantage when you start off as a young kid, you know, um, you started off in your martial arts career, frankly, late in life. High school's late in life uh, yeah. for athletics. It really is um, to be world class at something. It happens, but not. It's it's a rarity when it does. Like yeah. musicians, you know, it, it's rare that you have a musician that starts late in life. Oh yeah, you know. So when I was twenty one, really, I started studying the accordion before I was twenty one. But jazz at twenty one, I already knew. It's too late for me to be the best in the world. And plus what, what I was doing with the fighting, that was messing my fingers up. But to be honest, there was a time when I'm saying, okay, I'm going to lay off of doing some c- certain things with my hands because I want them to, I want to get a little better on the accordion. I want to develop some sort of technique here, you know, but yeah. you'll, you'll find it. You're young and you're smart, you know, you're, you, not right. you're, yeah. you're smart, Fredo. Um, you'll, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll figure things out. Um, well, he looks like him. He's got the same hair as Fredo, Joe. Come on. I can see, I can see the connection. All right. Um, well, no, watch, watch him in dog day afternoon. He had the same haircut, um, that Aaron has. Oh, he was in dog day afternoon with Pacino too. He made five movies, I believe. Huh. Can you believe that every movie I believe he was in either won the Oscar or was nominated for Best Picture? Um, you can look that up. But, yeah, and he he died making The Deer Hunter, right after The Deer Hunter. Yeah, he just had cancer when he was pretty young, right? I looked that up. I was surprised because I didn't know. I, I was like, where did this guy go? Because, yeah, I saw him in all these great movies, and then nothing. Well, he died. <laughs> well, you know. That, that um, would put a stopper on his career. Yeah, <laughs> no. It, well, he was with Meryl Streep when he died. They covered it up in that movie, or he never would have gotten that movie, uh, The Deer Hunter. John Cazale, for the people out there that don't know who the hell we're talking about. Um, Fredo. But, yeah, Fredo. You know, um, I'm smart. I'm not dumb. <laughs> you know, 
You're my older, I'm your older brother and you take care of me? Yeah, this is, that's, you know, you do remind me, you could, man, I'm telling you, man, that's another career option for you. You know, do the Fredo thing and play the cello at the same time. I mean, you think about it, or the viola. You can play the cello, I'm assuming, as well, correct? Um, I haven't, I haven't done cello yet. I love the way the cello sounds. Um, that's, that's probably my favorite sounding instrument is cello. Well, Maury Amsterdam from the Dick Van Dyke show, he was a celloist. Uh, he actually performed on the show a couple times, I believe. Oh, cool. Uh, and uh, what was her name? Paula Zahn, is it? Or no, may not have been Paula Zahn, but one of those Good Morning America style women. Um, she played, I believe, the cello or the viola. I don't remember. I think it was the cello. Yeah. I have a question. Pretty interesting. For uh, just going back, I want to follow up on something Tony was talking about before we go on. Um, so you were talking about how you, you know, you trained boxing for a few years before you moved on to wrestling. And then like you played the drums for a few years. Um, was that kind of circumstantial? Like you just, or did, was there things where you literally said no to yourself? Like, I'm going to wait until I get this good before I move on. Well, I was born a drummer. According to my mother, I was banging on drum, uh, uh, telephone books with spoons. I just was born to be a drummer, okay? So that was always in me. Um, I, uh, as far as the boxing was thrust upon me because of my grandfather and the neighborhood that I was living in, the violence. And I segued into wrestling. I didn't, just because, you know, Rod Von, the opportunity was there uh, with Rod Von. I never would have searched it out. I never even heard of catch wrestling at the time. Um so with the accordion, we my grandfather had one laying around the house, but I never, I mean, we had one of those Magnus chord organs, you know, that everybody had back then, you know, $20 or whatever. And now and then I would play it. I, I could play notes by ear. I mean, I could play songs by, you know, by ear, but I really never, you know, cared to learn the piano or anything. And to this day, I don't know what really got me into playing the accordion. I don't know. I don't remember. Um but I do remember I was already playing the accordion by the time I was 18. Okay. And I think it was because I was already a professional jobbing musician. My training with Rod Von was done. My boxing training, you know, generally speaking, was all, all that, that fight training was done. Um, so the, the next big adventure was, you know, I was playing a really good pool. I needed to tighten it up a little bit, but uh, I needed another challenge. I think that's what it was. Uh, and so my drum chops were going to naturally progress. I was going to just get better by continuing to play. But the accordion, I mean, I had to hunker down and learn. And I had to study music. See, I never studied music when I played the drums. Never knew how to read or anything. Um, I still don't read drum charts. Uh, but I needed to learn music. So like, like Aaron doesn't know some of this theory stuff, I delved into the theory of, of learning, you know, har harmony and uh, this and that. And I wanted to become an arranger that we talked about this. So yeah, Joe, the, 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 that part I planned out, everything else I did not plan out. It just, you know, it just seemed life when I got to a really good level at shit, something else appeared, you know? So I segued into that. But I didn't have plans. And it sounds like some things were must have been running in parallel because 
well, clearly oh, yeah. the, the drumming was going throughout. Oh yeah, yeah. And at a certain point, you must have been starting to shoot pool when you were training with Rod Vaughn. Is that like there must have been so? Or am okay, I wrong? So here, this is probably not something you should I should say publicly, but at this point in my life, I don't I don't care anymore. Um, my mom and stepdad, I did not live with them, but every so often I would get to spend a weekend with them. Okay. It wasn't every weekend. It was now and then. And those weekends were spent in a bar. Okay. I mean, that's what they, it was Friday, Saturday night. My stepfather was a heavy drinker. Um, so I was in bars since I was just a little boy. I'm talking young here. Okay. So I was always around pool, you know, pool tables. And um, so that's how I got to play pool and started on pool. And then my mom and, and Les, my stepdad, um, uh, they, they, they were living in a house and Les bought a uh, pool table. What, not a good one, but one of those Sears models. And so, um, and he was an okay pool player, not great, but, you know, sure better than me. So I would, whenever I was, would go over there, I would play pool there. Um, and that actually predates Rodvon even. Okay. Hmm. That predates Rodvon. So I didn't have any money. I was a kid, I w- but I was able to get one of those Coleco little toy, you know, two by four pool tables with balls the size of like a marble, a little bit bigger than a marble. And I had room for that and it would fold up. And so, um, I cut grass and shoveled snow, you know, one, I saved up the money to get one of those and I put it in one room of the house. You don't even use a cue stick. You use like something like this big, a little tiny thing. That was a cue stick, no chalk, but it, you know, it was just cause I was obsessed with it. So during free time, I would shoot that. I would shoot pool. Um, so yeah. So yeah, there were certain things in parallel, Joe. Um, but the, the, like as far as athletics, boxing and wrestling, and then track really was my three big things that ran in parallel. Little League, I don't count Little League baseball because, well, you play Little League for a couple months. You know, you don't play that year round. At least I didn't. Hmm, very interesting. Sorry, I mean, it was a digression, but I just always been curious about that because you, you know, you. Well, being in the bar is really like I saw a guy get killed. When my mom was a bartender, I saw uh, John, his name was, get shot in the head when they came in to rob the place. I was with mom and Les on, at, as customers. They were customers at the Dew Drop Inn on St. Clair, Clair Avenue That when that got robbed. Okay, th- this as a kid. Okay, so that really inspired me even more. Well, I guess you could say inspired me to learn to fight even more because I've been, around, I've been thrusted into violence uh, forever. Um, and, and I mean, since I was a little baby, I mean, pretty much my grandmother getting robbed at gunpoint, dragged in a car, walking me home from school. I mean, I I've, I've seen it all. There's other stories that I won't talk about publicly that I think I mentioned to you what happened to my next door neighbor when I was over there, when I, she was babies watching me, uh, just horrific stories. Uh, that's what gives me a uniqueness and why I have a lot of, uh, hatred for people that, pass off bullshit that don't work that's going to get somebody hurt or killed i i just don't have uh you know i don't have any time for people like that in my life because I, I i've been on that tail end that's why i, I like aaron he's young 
I want I want him to be guided right and not make mistakes because even people who are are well meaning um, could get you in a jackpot by thinking this shit that they know will work when it won't, <laughs> you know. Um, but anyway, so yeah, sorry to go on my rant. No, you're it's not a podcast unless we get one rant from you, Tony. So that that kind of completes the artistic expression here for us. You know, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that, this has been really great having you on. We've been going for about an hour and a half. Oh um, yeah. Well, you know, we're we're going to see you this coming Saturday at the seminar. So, uh, well, we call it a workshop now. Um, so anybody that wants to talk to Aaron in person about dancing lessons or anything in general, or just work out with the guy. Uh, we'll be there this Saturday. Yeah, beat him up. Yeah. Um, and of course, Joe Cardinal will be there. Martin's supposed to be there. Uh, so hopefully it'll be a nice little turnout. Uh, we're going to do some filming for my membership site. I don't know how well I'll be moving around this weekend. If it's any indicator, I had the seminar today in Downers Grove, uh, or DuPage Krav Maga. Thank you guys. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Larry, for the help. Uh, Mike. Yay, Jeff. Lauren, all you guys, uh, Paul, can't forget Paul, Chuck, you know, um, I didn't move so well. They knew that because of all this shit I'm going through with my health, but they're like, we don't care, you know, just be here and tell us stuff, you know, tell us what to do. Great crew. I really wish more people would stop out over there. It's a different energy than Bender's Martial Arts and Fitness. That tends to be like grappling oriented, where... DuPage, I can do my boxing and my street fighting shit, which I prefer. You know, I, I love that. And then we do our grappling, too. But it just depends on the the flow of stuff. But, yeah, come out and see Aaron. Um, we don't want any women there because, you know, Aaron, you know what's going to happen. We're, you and I are single. We're, we're going to get nothing. They're all going to go to him. It, it would crush my soul to see Joe just, you know, drowning in it, you know. Well, I mean... <laughs> That's what he does. You can't even take this guy anywhere. Not, not even to like a, a buffet where there's all guys because the guys are all on up and shit. It, yeah, there's just no, there's there's nothing you can do for it. You know, um, nope. when a hurricane blows through a town, you leave. Um, when Joe's in town, you know, there's nothing you can do. No. Unbelievable. So, Joe, you're you're cursed. It's a burden. You know, it's the cross I bear. Um, but you know, uh, and like I said, I try to, I try to back off and share with you guys, you know, but you know, I can only do so much. You're right. Can't swim against the current. Um, but, uh, you know, Aaron, honestly, it's been great getting to know you a little bit better, you know, at the gym, obviously we don't have time to really talk about your life and other aspects of you, but obviously, uh, you're doing some really fascinating, cool stuff with your life. And that was really cool to hear about. I know we just kind of scratched the surface on some of those. Um, so, uh, and obviously you're always welcome to come back when we have other guests, if you just want to hang out and, and, and join in, in the conversation, you're always welcome. Uh, uh, yeah. And I look forward to your seeing you continue to grow and your, all of the endeavors that you're working on. Well, thanks guys. It's been, it's been a lot of fun to, uh, come on and chat as well. Yeah. You know, it's like you said, you know, when we're, when we're working out, we're kind of focused on, on working out, but it's been cool getting to know, you know, bits about you guys too. Well, I just want to reiterate to everybody out there that the Aaron is also a friend of mine. Okay, Joe doesn't monopolize everything. Okay. Jeez. That's right. So come out and see my friend Aaron this Saturday, everybody. 
It'll I'll be a business, pleasure. I'll have business cards. Aaron Riker, uh, Tony Chikine's friend. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, if you ever get rich, rich <laughs> enough to, to buy property, buy a little island, and we can call it Riker's Island. Hey, like, there we go. It's like New York. Huh? <laughs> no, nobody wants to go to that Riker's Island, but they'll sure want to go to your Riker's Island. This will be the fun one. Yeah, this will be the fun Rikers Island. You go to you go to Aaron's Rikers Island, you'll end up in the other Rikers Island. Believe me, right. it'll cause trouble. It'll be a direct pipeline from one to the other. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, we'll see you guys next week on the podcast. Thanks everybody for joining in or listening. And uh, Martin or Martin, not Martin. What's your name, Joe? Thank you, Joe. And we'll see you and Aaron. I'll see you Saturday. Yeah, looking forward to it, guys. All right, man. See you guys. Thank you.